I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half, half as well, well, where we promise Tolkien lore half as much as you should like. Explained half as well as you deserve. Okay, we finished it. Finally. I know. Well, finally, I feel like it's flown by. It is a long damn book, though. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's true. Um, so we are wrapping up The Lord of the Rings. Today, uh, we, of course, read from Chapter 6, Many Partings, to Chapter 9, The Grey Havens. Next week, we'll talk a little bit about the appendices, um, as well as a little bit of Silmarillion prep before we go into that. But um, we just wanted to stop this week right at the end of the actual story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that'll be the best. Focus on wrapping up. Lord of the Rings, yeah, as a whole, pretty amazing. I'm, I'm surprised I made it through. Yeah. Um, do you feel accomplished having read this for the first time in your life? Yeah, definitely. I, I think um, it was better than I expected, as far as not, not quality, but um, like a better reading experience than I expected. Especially, I would say the second half of the trilogy mm-hmm. of volumes. You know, I, I think. Um, I knew I liked The Fellowship. I mean, I would say The Fellowship is my favorite Peter Jackson movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew I would I would appreciate like the very Hobbit-like nature of that book. Um, but what I was really surprised by was sort of the, the second half of Two Towers through Return of the King, I think yeah. is my favorite part of the, of the story. Yeah, and even though I've read it a lot, I think I had a similar experience where... Um through reading it this time it was just very apparent especially with this uh strict reading schedule we've been sticking to which parts that i was like oh yeah i haven't actually read this that much this mm-hmm. never really stuck out to me yeah and other parts where i'm like oh yeah this is my fate this is like what i reread whenever i right. pick, reach for the book yeah did you find any new favorite parts that you were like wow i should reread this more often <laughs> or you just think. confirmed your <laughs> yeah maybe i just like realized what i liked this is no this is why i really like it <laughs> yeah. um but uh i will say i i didn't looking it back as a whole i don't think i really uh jived as much with um fellowship of the ring as i have in the past yeah i i don't think it's as good as the other two books i'm realizing more it's kind of a case of tolkien trying to find his footing and what he wanted the story to be and then like the other two i think it's more settled oh definitely i would say if you're looking at these from like a planning standpoint as far as like the writing process goes not that i know whether he planned or how planned he was before he started writing but Two Towers and Return of the King really feel like they have a clear direction and a clear process. The Fellowship, uh, on the other hand, just feels like very disorganized. Um, And it switches from like this Hobbit stuff to some chapters of like pure admin and info dumping to then like finally kind of finding its footing by the end. And I mean, even in the main quest, like the characters themselves say, we don't want to plan too far ahead. Like the path <laughs> itself is still pretty open. You could tell Tolkien was leaving himself like a uh, lot of options yeah. on the table. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it worked out. But uh, yeah. I think the kind of stuff he pulls off in Return of the King, as far as all of these characters coming together, um, that's like it really nails it into place in a way that uh, I don't think he knew mm-hmm. <laughs> was going to do when he first started writing the the first section 
Yeah, and just speaking of the flow of the story, that takes us to our reading where our last one, we kind of ended it with like the big heroic triumph. The yeah. ring is destroyed, Aragorn is crowned king, um, all seems right in the world, and now we have just this last section is all these endings. Yeah. Um, um, wrapping everything back up. And you know, it's it's definitely, uh, I guess I didn't feel very emotional as they're all parting, you know, and saying goodbye to each other because... I feel like, you know, they've hung out for a while. Um, some months have gone by mm-hmm. before the hobbits finally say, okay, you guys, we like need to go to Rivendell and then we need to yeah. get back to the Shire as soon mm-hmm. as possible. But yeah, like at the moment, they're all kind of still living in Minas Tirith. It's been mm-hmm. like a few months. Uh, they've just been kind of living with Aragorn, waiting for his wedding. And that finally happened. And well, this uh, section starts off with a really funny interaction that is teased all the way back in Two Towers between Aemir and Gimli. Oh, yes. <laughs> where they uh, they finally see Gladriel. Right. And uh, Aemir is like, you know, I can't say that she's the most beautiful because, you know, Arwen is the most yeah. beautiful. And I, well, I, or like, well, before Arwen he says her, that, yeah. I love that Gimli's like, well, gotta go get my axe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you gotta die, man. Yeah. Um, they're very cute in this section, and uh, I, I would say, like, there's not a ton of, like, I mean, everyone always talks about how beautiful Galadriel is, but um, there's not a lot of women in the story. There's not a lot of mm-hmm. talking about how beautiful women are, um, but this is one of those moments where it's like, yeah, just dudes talking about ladies and how gorgeous they are. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, uh, you like the morning, I like the evening, mm-hmm. um, you know. Some men like blonde, some like uh, brunettes, brunettes, you know? uh... (laughs) Yeah. Um, So that's cute. They eventually go back to Edoras and hold Theoden's funeral. And then Eowyn's wedding. Yeah, pretty much right on the spot. Eowyn and Faramir get married. Which, again, I think ties back really well to what we had talked about with Theoden talking about the young parish while the old linger. And then we know there was that moment in the battle where Theoden could have been saved, but at the expense of Faramir's life. Right, exactly. And all Theoden never really wanted was Eowyn to smile. So Eowyn gets married to this man who's bringing her all this happiness at Theoden's funeral. I think exactly as he would have wanted I, I just love Eowyn. Mm-hmm. Um, I love her whole deal. And it's, I think, very relatable as far as like moving on from your first obsessive infatuation with someone you kind of put on a pedestal to like actually falling in real love with someone who loves you back. Um, yeah. And Aragorn has, you know, no lack of love for her. He he does really like, I, I mean, I, I think he loves her a lot. And yeah, I think um, another thing that Tolkien does really well is like a character that cannot return someone's love and 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 they feel terrible about it. Yeah. Oh, totally. Um, you know, when he wrote away on the Paths of the Dead, they said that like no one was more sorrowful in that moment than Aragorn. Yeah. Um, yeah. like leaving Eowyn behind like crying for him. Yeah, I I I think that's a really cool and nuanced relationship. Yeah. And now they're just buds. Yeah. Like, uh well, he's her king, yeah. but um <laughs> but, you know, and he's kind of like their matchmaker too. Right. Like yeah, he's exactly. kind of like, I saved both of you, brought you back. And like, uh, I'm what you both have in common. So like, y'all <laughs> yeah. go off and be yeah. happy. Um, but then the hobbits are like, okay, we've got to get a move on yeah. to Rivendell. And well, what I like about this part too is now we get to see Legolas and Gimli's promises to each other where they're like, I'll see those caves if you come with me to see the woods. And they go to the glittering caves of yeah. Helm's Deep, which Gimli will eventually become the lord of. And uh, Legolas has no words to say. 
he's kind of in shock of the beauty, <laughs> which I really liked. And they're like, you're going to have to ask Gimli like, about that. And then they go back up to Isengard and run back in with Treebeard to check right. on how Saruman's doing. And then there's some kind of surprising news. Yeah, Saruman's gone. They, like, let him go. Yeah. Uh, which is just, like, funny and definitely an interesting commentary on, like, mercy. Uh, whereas, yeah. like, most, most of Tolkien, I mean, even with Saruman later in this story, there's, like, undue amounts of mercy applied to the situation. Yeah. But yeah, Treebeard is like, you know, I do not like seeing a caged anything. Like I yeah, it's not my anything in a cage is like terrible. Like I'm a wild tree man, so there's no way. Yeah, and what this really calls to mind for me is Tom Bombadil. Um yeah. you know, here we have yet another nature aligned being. Um there's also all this debate over who is the eldest. I think right. Treebeard is described as the oldest living thing in Middle Earth. He's the eldest. So there's like these similarities between uh, Tom and Treebeard. And at the Council of Elrond, when the uh, possibility of sending the ring for Tom to hold was brought up, Gandalf was like, he would be an unsafe guardian. Uh, yeah. it would, he would quickly not really care about this. And that would be dangerous. And that's what like, that reminds me of with Treebeard and Saruman. Like they trusted Treebeard with Saruman. And he was like, well, he seemed like reformed enough to me. Like, I don't know. Right. Um. Yeah, and I think this is just part of Tolkien's commentary about, like, the world of nature is, like, pretty, um... Just not authoritarian. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. And, yeah. it, like, it's not about control at all. Yeah, exactly. Um, and basically, Treebeard's, like, you know, he's a toothless snake, a fangless snake, and he'll just be able to wander now, but he can't, like, really harm us in the same way. Uh, which is definitely not true. But they come across yeah. Saruman on the trail, yeah, and, and I love just the diminished state of him from the great white wizard to now this, like, spiteful beggar on the road. Oh, yeah, and he's very angry, <laughs> and especially with the hobbits, which he, he makes no illusions about that, like, he's I mean, they're, pretty bothered Without a doubt, them. the reasons for his downfall. Yeah, but they offer him the parting gift, sort of, of giving him their last long bottom leaf that they have and and pipe um and he's like oh like for my stores right? um, yeah yeah i'll take what's mine back yeah um and of course he has grima with him who is like totally definitely in a diminished state as well yeah. just like not the same mm -hmm. level of of being that he once was yeah, and yet again, we also see the wise, like Galadriel and Gandalf, try to give him another chance to like turn away from the path he's on. And he's just like, I don't want your mercy. I don't want your pity. And he just doubles down on his bitterness. Yeah, I actually found this really interesting. You know, I, I think compared to a lot of the other like armies of Mordor and, and the orcs and stuff like that, when Sauron dies, there's this immediate like change and shift. And for some of them, like a complete change of heart or like a complete mm -hmm. diversion away from the <laughs> trudging of this evil dominion and that is not the case for saruman saruman is like wholly and completely corrupted by this point he does not regret anything that he's done he has no sort of like reflection and no no uh, sense of like yeah that wasn't the right thing to do um at all and I think that's actually very unique and, and interesting, especially since he is one of the Maya as well, for 
such a powerful being that corruption was absolute and um he's wholly transformed by mm-hmm. his involvement in it yeah i mean we see uh, essentially the same thing with morgoth and sauron and they were both offered uh, chances to re- yeah. repent and um even though that may have seemed foolish um to like offer that yeah they always end up kind of like reneging and going back <laughs> yeah, to their and, like uh, revealing themselves and, and eventually just hurting themselves in the process yeah. and debasing themselves further and further but yeah so at this point the fellowship's pretty like well broken up and there's this one passage that i always really liked when you know it's like the hobbits and then there's elrond galadriel and gandalf and these are the three ring bearers of the three elven rings and they've been pretty like secretive up until this point like we knew galadriel did from way back but i think here soon like we find out like elrond and gandalf had the other two all the other rings of power were bound up into the power of the one ring so when the one ring goes so too must the power of the lesser rings so now it's like gandalf galadriel and elrond their era is over right yeah and so I love this scene of they said that if anyone happened upon them in the woods, they would have just seen like old stone memorials of a right. bygone age. Yeah. It's kind of like, again, the magic of like the rings that is broken now. Yeah. And like all time is catching back up. And so I don't know. That was always just a very uh, profound image to me. And also the idea of them communicating back and forth with just their minds. Mm-hmm. Um, really cool. Yeah, this really has just been the whole transfer of power. With their loss, is Middle-earth kind of restored somewhat to a state of former good Yeah, now. Yeah, absolutely. But they have to lose it and go across the sea to Mm -hmm. Valinor for that. So they make their way to Rivendell, where they come across Bilbo. He's doing well, but he's super old at this Mm -hmm. point. This part always makes me sad. Um, Oh, it is super sad. You know, what, like a year has passed or something since they last saw him? Yeah. Not even. Uh, And he was so bright and vibrant and vivacious. Yeah, even without the ring, he was still Um, like... It was pretty recent after that. um, And the ring was still obviously alive. And the power was alive. So now that the ring's destroyed, it's all that is catching up with him. Yeah. I think the saddest part of this scene is when he asks to see the ring. Um, And he's like, in that moment, kind of forgotten that the ring has been destroyed. And that's kind of the whole point of what Frodo was going to do. Back to the Council of Elrond, he volunteered to destroy it. No, exactly. Um, It's like he's really like mentally lost his place um and and just seems like his age is totally catching up with him and you know he longs for the ring still mm-hmm. that's just really sad to me <laughs> and well yeah and we see he's probably not going to ever be free of that no unless he leaves middle earth yeah exactly so that's you know all foreshadowing all these characters are in need of some healing right and as we'll see frodo is too the homeward bound chapter starts with them passing by like weathertop and gandalf saying you know some wounds can never truly be healed and uh, i love frodo he's like i've been wounded by knife sting and tooth and a long burden and like where shall i find rest right and gandalf's like i I can't i don't know to tell you bud yeah um Uh, not in middle earth yeah definitely and and i mean it's clear that Frodo, uh, and it'll become even more clear in the following chapters, but um, that his wounds have continued, you know, as, mm-hmm. as much as he's been invigorated and come back to himself a lot since the destruction of the ring, uh, his pain definitely lingers. Yeah. And I think this gets to something that is pretty deep in the themes of what Tolkien was trying to get at with this world. 
At one point, the world, Arda, was in this perfect state before the Dark Lord came and ruined it, and now it is called Arda Mard. It can never go back to the way it was. Right. But because of that deep sorrow, that is what allows, you know, joy to yeah. exist. So, like, sorrow and joy will always exist because of this world that has fallen, that can't return to its pristine Eden-like state. And I feel like what he's doing with the character Frodo is like he's making Frodo almost a metaphor or a microcosm of Arda itself. He's been wounded by all this evil and he can't ever be quite renewed. No. Unless he goes to the Undying Lands. Right. And I mean, eventually the whole thing with the world is it will one day be renewed. Sure. So um, I've just always appreciated that Frodo and his trauma is very much like the world and the world's trauma. Yeah. Um, that we exist in a fallen state, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Well, it's that a... so many good things are allowed to exist because of that fallen state. I think that's like such a positive like re-imaging of original sin. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, where it's like a little more elemental and not so much punishment it's kind of like it was gonna it was inevitable it was, inevitable, it was gonna happen yeah. um, like the so marring like, of the world is inevitable but that is what allows us to like experience a vivacious life yeah exactly so i've always really appreciated that view that tolkien um injects into his work and so i think it's done really well with just frodo's arc with his trauma here yeah so they keep going. They're all very excited to go to Bree, and uh, Gandalf actually is going to come with them. He wants to check on Butterbur and, you know, see how things are doing. And immediately it's clear that things are not too great in Bree. The guard looks at them funny and then is happy to let them in once he realizes who they are. But things are, are strange there, and, and they hear um, that there's a lot more movement of suspicious characters from the South who have sort of taken up hold in Brie. Yeah, I mean, as they were leaving Brie, like, a year prior, they had people coming up from the South, and that has only been continuing as the war in the right. South has been going on, all these refugees from the war. But some of them are definitely some nefarious characters that were most likely probably in league with Saruman. Yeah. So yeah, now they've been kind of beset by these uh, ruffians, these scoundrels and bandits living in the woods uh, surrounding Brie, harassing the people, and... Um, yeah, to Butterbird just seems like his nice quiet life has just like been turned upside <laughs> totally. down and he's all just like, oh, I, you know, I can't deal with this. And they're all very jolly. They're just like, better days are coming. Just just wait. Yeah, like we have a king now, you know, he, there's a king in this land and he's legit and Sauron's gone. <laughs> yeah, and he's going to be coming north soon to restore the north kingdom of Arnor and... Uh, everything's going to be great again. Right. Um, and, and basically the, the message they receive is like, hey, like this is happening in the Shire too. Like yeah. the Shire is not escaping from what we're Which they've heard with. like dark um, words from Saruman regarding the Shire. Definitely. And uh, there's been other hints earlier in the Sam's story too. visions in the mirror and, yeah. and stuff like that. So um, I think even Aragorn, like in the maybe Flotsam and Jetsam chapters, just like, yeah, maybe the reason y'all found some leaf here, there could be weird things happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, So it's all been kind of been hinted at, um, and now it's getting closer and closer. But one thing I really love from uh, this scene, though, is they're talk trying to tell Butterbur about the king and stuff. And, <laughs> yeah. And then he's just like, yeah, the king, like, who's that? And they're like, haven't you figured it out yet? It's, it's Strider. And he's like, what? <laughs> 
He's like, I feared you guys were dead after you ran off with that Strider, like yeah. that nefarious character. But I just love all the suspicion that the Bree folk and Butterbur had for the Rangers and Aragorn. <laughs> I know. And then now to find out that like, oh wait, these are actually these deeply like holy people that are of this great high lineage well, that are restoring the great kingdom yeah and he mentions how like the rangers are gone so there's no one here to protect us from all these weirdos who are now yeah alive. yeah now he appreciates them yeah then they leave Bree and get back on the road and well we also found out that a early member of the fellowship survived oh bill the pony bill the pony <laughs> i always i remember like how upset you were about the ponies getting like uh, eaten by a the Smaug. goblins and, and later yeah. by Smaug too and how Tolkien was just very cruel to the ponies oh, yeah. and then here it was he like he literally names the pony and keeps him in the story forever <laughs> yeah and almost gives him like dialogue yeah. basically and uh, and then he has this moment where he's just kind of left to the wolves and we never found out what happened and he survived though he survived and now he becomes Sam's uh, faithful pony yeah Love it. Um, so they make their way back to the Shire, and it's immediately clear that things are terrible there. Um, and and Gandalf is like, "Well, bye." Yeah, which is fucking crazy. <laughs> he's, he's like, like "I'll come back at some point," but like, he's like, "You guys got this." Which they do have this. No, and he's he's like pretty much just like this is what this has all been leading to. This is what you guys have been trained for. Um, yeah, I think this is pretty wild. Um, this whole, I mean, of course, this is definitely not in the Peter Jackson movies. No, uh, which is kind of a shame because this is like really the Hobbit moment of like total valiance um i mean i know they've been doing kind of these earth shattering things but i think that's like a different task than coming home noting how how evil has spread to your own home well and you can kind of see that okay maybe you know frodo's raised by bilbo sam's always grown up uh hearing about elves and dragons Mary's like a brandy buck from across the brandy wine over in Buckland and, and Pippin's a toque. So maybe these are just exceptional hobbits, but now they're coming back to like just the salt of the earth hobbiton farmers, you know, yeah. that are like, no, we've had enough of this shit. Like, yeah, we're going to fight back. Yeah. It's pretty wild. Um, You know, there's, there's clearly hobbits who have been resisting the takeover of Sharky and um, well, originally it starts with Lotho. Lotho. Who's his cousin, right? That's Bilbo's yeah, uh, Lobelia's son. Yeah, um, he sort of instituted himself and started buying up a bunch of land, and and people were like wondering where he had gotten all the money from. But it turns out he was getting all that money from Saruman, and um, he was also the one selling all that Longbottom leaf to Saruman, mm-hmm. and that basically had allowed a bunch of like half orcs and um, men. To, to move in on the turf and uh, they're referred to as ruffians. Basically, I think it's so interesting that, again, this goes back to Tolkien's like clear anti-industrialism in this story, that it's not that these ruffians have like taken away order or anything like that. They've actually like built a ton of buildings. They've built like a factory in Tolkien's world, that is like what destruction looks like. 
I just really appreciate that. And I mean, as someone living in a rural place and growing up in a rural place, yeah, <laughs> like you do just not so much where we live, but right outside of it, as you get closer to cities, you do see these areas that like 10 years ago were completely pastoral. Then suddenly there's a, a housing development there or like a giant mill or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, and uh, I definitely understand on like a visceral level that kind of disgust with <laughs> mm -hmm. with that type of development. They come back and now there's all these rules. Right. And to th I love how comical it is to them. Yeah. They're like, uh, okay, like <laughs> you're going to tell me like I can't just go on ahead. Like what's all these gates and these fucking rules? And yeah. And and they see the people that they knew growing up and they're like, what are you doing enforcing this like stuff? Yeah. And uh, Sandy man. Yeah. Well, exactly. And um, I love that they're like, you're under arrest. And they're like, all right, cool. We're, we're going. Um, yeah. And so they're like, well, they're trying to keep up with them and they're on ponies and they just eventually leave them behind. Yeah. Like the sheriffs. And it's just like, yeah, they can't even arrest them. No, so it's... it's it's really funny almost. But I I don't know. I really like how Tolkien presents sort of the, the silliness of fascism. Oh, yeah. This comparison between these like low level baddies and what the main characters all just faced you know they yeah they just like came up against true darkness and especially in the case of frodo kind of seeing the true depth of what depravity and loss can look like um yeah he was consumed by the evil <laughs> ring of a fallen angel yeah like... exactly and and so like coming back and just seeing all of these footmen of the servants of that guy who are like haven't gotten the message that it's all over now and at the end of the day like the top man is saruman who's basically right. still just a beggar right exactly um, it's very petty and mean and yeah and um... the only reason any of this is happening is because the hobbits were so valiant you know and, and yeah. saruman is petty <laughs> this is like the last like he has to stand on yeah him, exactly to do any damage um so they do a really good job of of threatening off these um ruffians very easily and then sort of stirring up the other hobbits who it seems like there were many kind of waiting in the wings especially the yeah. farmers yeah. um you know were ready to go ahead mm -hmm. and, 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 and start the doing especially. it. Yeah, the Tooks were already... They had to be put on, like, lockdown because they were going to, like... <laughs> they were already shooting at the ruffians and, and killing some of them. Yeah, it's like they started. Yeah. <laughs> like, they're like, what are you doing on our land? Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, which is funny. It's just very relatable. <laughs> um, and they eventually come across Saruman uh -huh. and have a pretty intense exchange. I actually found that this exchange with Saruman was the darkest part of the book. The imagery that Saruman brings up in his speech and the way he treats Grima, Wormtongue in this scene. Um, well, he kind of almost hints at Grima cannibalizing. Yeah. Martha. I mean, it's very It's really dark. dark. Whether and that happened or not, it's still like, to go there is... Um... No, it, it's really, like, it's... And I, I think it's kind of wild. I actually, like, in this moment felt that Saruman is a much more cruel villain than Sauron, even, you know? And I, I mean, I, I think that's a reach because, like, Sauron is this far-reaching. But mm -hmm. for us as the readers, you know, we never, like, face-to-face -face experience Sauron. Whereas Saruman, 
even now when like there's no chance of him achieving glory or power in any type of way, he is like in the depths of just the most yeah. hateful, cruel stuff. Well, and like I said, I think Saruman stands in as a character to show us that transition that Sauron must have at one point gone right. through. So, I mean, yeah, Saruman's pretty well just evil and nasty at this point. And I mean, yeah, it's like this is how Sauron got to be this being of just pure evil. Yeah. Um, When he was this like high noble person who right. did want to just affect change, but then it became about changing his means yeah and uh his own words are definitely the key to his undoing in classic tolkien fashion in the face of frodo's immense amount of mercy that he applies here uh his frodo insists that they do not kill saruman um and instead let him slink off and and saruman's basically like i'm not pleased at all my vengeance is not sweet like this sucks, you dick. Like, I can't believe you're being so nice to me. Like, now I can't even be angry. Yeah, that was, like, kind of the worst thing anyone could yeah. have done to Saruman in that moment was spare his life. Right, exactly. And have them be indebted to him. Yeah, he definitely wanted to die. Um, But he, he continues on, and then Frodo extends that same openness towards Grima and says, you don't have to go with him. You can stay here and kind of reform yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, which again, like Frodo's been to hell and back and, and really understands like... And well, Grima has to remind him a lot of Gollum at this point. Oh, totally. Grima says like he's crawling on all fours yeah, at this point, like he's, a beast. He's, he's much like Gollum in these mm-hmm. scenes. And uh, Grima stops for a moment and then that's when Sauron goes on this like horribly abusive tirade and this this part like it's just it was the worst words in the book i guess you know um up until this point everything has been like a little more distance like the evil feels like at a distance but Mm -hmm. this is like very in your face and um it pisses grima off enough that he he kills saruman and then he is killed in the act of doing that yeah also very similar to Gollum. yeah um yeah exactly the ultimate bane of sauron and dying in the process but that wouldn't have happened if uh, Gandalf and others didn't show him mercy uh, right. at Edoras yeah. when everyone else wanted to kill him. Exactly. So much like Frodo said, it's a pity we didn't kill Gollum when we had a chance. Right. Um, no. Uh, and then obviously that went on to be huge. Uh, same here. Grima's almost, um, th- this ending for Grima reminds me of that alternate ending that Tolkien had, had written about in letters for Gollum. Yeah. That if Gollum was shown Sam's mercy... Um, and not accused uh, by him that he would have eventually taken the ring but dove into the... Taken one for the team. Yeah, taken one for the team and uh, destroyed the ring himself along with him. And I like the imagery of Saruman's death. Uh, This gray smoke-like shadow rises up and then is blown away by the west wind, which is exactly what happened when another uh, Maya, Sauron, died. Um, And again, this is just very uh, representative of manway's ultimate rejection of their return their spirits return to valinor yeah he's just like nope you are just now a spirit that is doomed to wander middle earth you've lost most of your power because for the maiar and even the valar they have finite power and now saruman and sauron have wasted most of their power they're not totally destroyed they just like can't do much anymore no they're just kind of these little mischievous poltergeists in the world that still linger on and with that, we've really, you know, come to the close of the dealing with adversaries part of the book. Yeah, I mean, they say the end of the War of the Ring ended 
at the door of Bag End, right. where it all began. Then we get to see the lovely restoration of the Shire and how they rebuild, which is, you know, nice. Sam's a big part of that, being a gardener. He, and Galadriel's and gift. And Galadriel's gift. Um, planting a bunch of trees with her magic powder, and, and they grow quickly by spring. Yeah. And the party tree is replaced with a Malorn tree. Yeah. From La Florian. Um, so things are going really well. Sam decides that he wants to marry Rosie, or it almost sounds like Rosie decides that they're going to get married. <laughs> yeah, I always like when he comes back um, and meets up with her again. It it gives me the feeling that they were almost a thing before he went off. Yeah, mostly um, her father's reaction. He's basically like, well, where's Rosie and, and Mrs. Cotton and... Uh, his there's like a glint in in farmer cotton's eye where he's sort yeah. of like oh like she's over there but like you know you can go check her out if you her. want yeah. like and, she's fine but... and um rosie's just kind of like well i've been waiting for you you took long enough yeah <laughs> um so yeah i get the feeling like they were a thing before yeah. and it reminds me a lot of like a soldier that goes off to war after only having known like a woman for like a week or so right but then she's like <laughs> writing to him she's like that's the man i'm going to marry yeah. yeah and now he's returned home from war and they're just like well let's get married yeah I don't know if I'm going to be able to talk about this part without talking about the potentially like queer readings of Sam and Frodo. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Um, But uh, I'll try to like take that out of my analysis at first and then we can maybe rot back to that. Yeah. And so Frodo insists that Sam marry Rosie at once, but they move into his house and they'll all live together Mm -hmm. um, and whatever offspring that uh, that Sam and Rosie um, create. And, um, and yeah, and there's this, a lot of this talk about Sam being torn in two, right? Uh, his obligations to his family, yeah. his wife, and now uh, children that are on the way, and his obligation to the person that has been taking up all of his space this whole time, <laughs> yeah, which is his master, yeah. Um, and Fred is like, you're, yeah, you're not going to be able to like both take care of me and take care of your family. And Frodo's not doing very well. You know, at the anniversaries of each of his, like, mortal woundings, Mm. uh, or, like, nearly mortal woundings, he has great illness. And um, he just seems very despondent in those times. And uh, it it seems kind of like only Sam can get him out of it by just, like, hey, how are you doing? And, you know, then he kind of gets over it and is fine for a while. But... It's clear that war and being a ring bearer has taken a great toll on on and, and a permanent toll on yeah. Frodo. He's he's quite traumatized. He really steps back from any amount of public life. And Sam notes that you know, compared to Merry and Pippin, and even Sam himself, no one really knows the story of of what Frodo did, you know, and and Mm -hmm. granted, like he did the most important thing. He's the reason that all of them are living in peace. And um, Sam definitely feels bad about that and uh, is is sad for his master and and, um, is very much preoccupied still with Frodo's condition. Um, And Frodo has a lot of, you know, input in Sam's life. He he names his firstborn Eleanor when Sam is planning on naming a son Frodo and then it's a daughter instead. That's, you know, he, he goes to Frodo and Frodo is the one who comes up with the name for the flower that they saw on their travels together. <laughs> yeah, it's quite intimate. It's very intimate. I Like, 
it's extreme. They have an extremely close friendship and Rosie disappears on these pages. She's just, she's just there somewhere. Yeah. But eventually they're finally nearing Bilbo's 130th birthday, which was sort of his goal to beat the old Took. Also keeping in mind, it's also Frodo's birthday. Yeah. That's not mentioned. Um, no, it is They just talk about it as though. Bilbo's birthday, but yeah. they share the same birthday. And Frodo goes to Sam and is sort of like, okay, come on, come on into adventure with me. You'll only be gone like two weeks. And Sam's like, I can't keep doing this. Like, I can't keep tearing myself in two. I can't leave Rosie like that. And he's like, you've got to come. You just have to see me off. We're going to go see Bilbo. And don't worry. Like, it'll be fine, but you need to come. So they, they ride out. They have a very peaceful journey. And it's not until they arrive and, you know, meet up with Elrond and Galadriel and Gandalf and Bilbo. And Bilbo says, you know, like, okay, let's go on to the next adventure. Sam realizes, like, oh, my God. Oh, they're leaving Middle Earth. <laughs> they're leaving Middle Earth. Like, Frodo's leaving for good. Frodo has just decided that he is unable to continue with his his earthly life yeah and here's something that tolkien writes a little bit more about in his letters that i wish was more in these chapters where it's not just he's traumatized you know oh totally. and he you know he he has a lot that he can't quite um reckon with but part of that there's a lot of guilt that he feels yeah specifically around his failure to destroy the ring um and he can't you know, Gandalf and the others see the sacrifice of Frodo and realize how heroic it is. They're like, yeah, we never expected you to destroy the ring. We needed you to bear the ring. Right. Um, but Frodo still can't quite conceive the part he's played in all this. He's like, I should have destroyed the ring. Mm-hmm. Even though, like, literally no one else could have done any better than him. That failure weighs really deeply on him. And they realize that the only way he's ever going to be able to kind of step back and realize his place in all this and therefore be healed is if he leaves Middle Earth and goes to the Undying Lands. So that's a huge part of why he has to leave is because he will never be at peace if he stays in Middle Earth. He will always be haunted by that moment right and what he could have done differently and also another thing too is the undying lands i think a lot of people think of them as like oh you go there and you live forever and they're not called the undying lands because you know you go there and you're undying they're called the undying lands because that's where the undying people live yeah the three races of the valar the Maiar, and the eldar the elves and they're not meant for mankind really except for these special exceptions people like bilbo or frodo and honestly i think tolkien writes that death will come sooner to mortals if they go there. Mm. So really Bilbo and Frodo are, especially Bilbo, who's at this point very old, they're sailing away to die, but to die at peace. Yeah. Um, Because they know they're never going to find that Middle Earth. Yeah, they're going to have this like moral resolution that they they just can't achieve while they're in Mm -hmm. the, the marred Arda. Because as we've seen with Bilbo, he still cannot not still ask about the ring. Yeah. Like, um, he still wants to see it, and he's never going to be free of that unless he leaves Middle Earth. And I, I sort of feel like, even though it's not said, you know, Frodo does not talk about like that part of his journey necessarily. Mm-hmm. I have to think that's something that he's feeling too is the longing for the ring. I think at one point he does kind of mention like it's destroyed, like yeah, it'll never come back. It'll never come back. Um, yeah. and 
oh, it's just, it's heart-wrenching. I, yeah. I, found, I found this ending just, like, gutted me. Oh, yeah, it's really, it, it's very bittersweet. Because um, on one hand, again, Fredo's a character that we've just seen suffer so much. Yeah. Like, I want nothing more than for him to be happy at this point. Right. So this is where he's going to go be happy. I mean, he's likely going to die not too long after that. Mary and Pippin show up at the very end, um, you know, and they're like, ah, you tried to fool us once, but this time Gandalf yeah. told us where you were, so. Yeah, and I like that Gandalf... Uh, brings them along so that Sam doesn't go back alone. Right. It's just like Frodo's vision at Tom Bombadil's house. Um, he sails away through this gray rain curtain into this green land. Um, so he had foreseen his eventual ending of the story way back in the house of Tom Bombadil. And now it's all come full circle. Gladriel and Elrond, the other ring bearers are going. And yeah. I mean, that ties way back with the Sil- This is really right. the end of the Silmarillion too. Yeah. Um, in a way, which I really like, uh, Galadriel's like the last of the Noldor finally sailing back home after, you know, the ban has been lifted. So yeah, it's like definitely, like they say, this is the end of an age and the beginning of a new age. Yeah, really heavy. Frodo sails off after he says goodbye to all of his friends. He catches sight of the the shores of Valinor and and sees like his bright future ahead, you know, living there in peace. Um, But for Sam, everything darkens. And uh, he and Mary and Pippin continue back to the Shire, not talking. <laughs> they don't talk at all to each other on their way home. And oh my God, I like, I don't know if I, <laughs> I'm like tearing up. Like, <laughs> well, let me finish for you. Uh, he comes back and uh, he comes back home to Eleanor and Rosie and back home. And he just sighs and says, well, I'm back. Um, and even though he was only gone for like a couple of weeks, what he's really kind of referring to more is he has now returned home from the war. And now with Frodo gone, he can kind of move on with his life with Rosie. And out of everyone, you know, if Lord of the Rings is this big epic fairy tale, out of everyone, Sam gets the fairy tale ending. Yeah. He gets married, has tons of kids, lives in peace. Uh, he's like the mayor a ton and he gets to live happily ever after. Yeah. And he becomes the, the story teller as well Mm -hmm. uh by the end of this yeah frodo and bilbo get this very arthurian ending literally the the harbor of the lonely isle where they are going is called avalone which is linguistically very similar to avalon (laughs) um so they're basically sailing to avalon um like king arthur at the end of the tale and but yeah but sam pretty much becomes the uh the one who carries on the story frodo gives him you know the red book this is where we get you know, all this talk about Bilbo's notes and getting it all together. Um, this is the meta Lord of the Rings in the story, the Lord of the Rings. And um, so Sam is now the keeper of the Red Book. And that's, that's it. That's the end. <sighs> Final thoughts? Yeah, I think I'll keep my, my queer reading of this until next week when we kind of summarize the series after we talk about the, the appendices and stuff like that. And we can talk about some more broader stroke, like, analysis of the entire series. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have a lot to say about that. And I know for not all readers, that is, like, not a whatever, like, a, a common or a valid, you know, reading of it. But for me, it was, like, huge. Especially this ending part. Like, oh my god. The way this these books end is just, like... Yeah, I think a lot of people, when they 
you know talk about queer readings of this they focus a lot on the mordor chapters which like and not as much on the returned home to the shire chapters no because like you know and and not to get totally into it right now but um you know so much of the i think when people talk about it in in that view that this last section is definitely the most like what i would say is feels like historically coded for like what men coming home from war who had had really deep potentially intimate relationships with each other as soldiers what their lives looked like that this is absolutely not that he wrote it as that type of code but like it is that (laughs) there are plenty of other stories that are exactly like this and um i can i can see why that rings true to a lot of people yeah but uh yeah overall pretty great you know i mean i uh it's a big lot of stories a lot of happened (laughs) many characters lot lot of plot (laughs) I mean, yeah, uh, I, I think something that was different before I started reading this series than how it was, like my expectations was, I, I thought these um, books were a lot more regularized within themselves. You know, I, I thought, um, especially since this is like touted as this big kind of genre creator, which it is, um, but I thought it would be a little more orderly inside and, and like how he writes would stay more consistent throughout. Uh, and that is definitely not the case. Well, it just, I feel like I'm taken to the mind of like Bilbo when I'm reading this and his like scattered notes everywhere. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, it really does feel like certain parts of the book were written by different hobbits. Totally. Um, like the first half of Fellowship was written maybe by Bilbo. Yeah. Um, and then later parts are, you know, narrated through Mary and Pippin's experiences. And um, yeah, like, I, I think I mentioned this before, and maybe you weren't as big of a fan, but I do like how kind of cobbled together it feels. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think it's fine. I, I like that it sort of reminds me when you like watch a movie that you have heard a bunch of um, like studio drama about, or there have been massive like firings and hirings during the production. And you watch the final movie and you're like, yeah, that makes sense. Um, this kind of feels like that. And, and what we know of his like struggle to get this published, um, like his, his journey from trying to publish the Silmarillion into writing this story, I think is evident and clear. And I, I am excited to read more of the Silmarillion as we go forward and, and see kind of those, those through lines. Cause I, I personally like that, you know, I, I, the anthropological side of that, of like, this is a human trying to get his work published and yeah it was a hugely influential and, and, and work. i love how that makes it into the story yeah. of like um like oh how am i ever going to finish this book yeah. and like <laughs> um well like an older uh person passing off the work to their younger heir it reminds me a lot of tolkien making his son christopher the lineage bearer yeah, pretty much like the executor of his work yeah um, he's like sam yeah or i mean or like frodo, <laughs> or frodo to, bilbo, to bilbo or yeah. yeah frodo to sam um i think there's something just very real about it uh for tolkien he yeah knew, like, he knew like i have too many thoughts like i i'm gonna need someone and i not enough time yeah i'm going to die eventually well i need someone to help uh get this work continue it put it in order i think what's also awesome is you know like this was a genre creating series not that fantasy didn't exist before tolkien wrote the lord of the rings but 
the way it is now certainly didn't. And uh, for something to be this like gripping for adults when it's basically made from fairy tales uh, is was pretty novel at the time. And yeah, I mean, Tolkien, his whole view on fairy tales, that they are not solely for children. Yeah, um, that they're almost in could be an inherently adult work. And like extremely um, culturally relevant. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think like you said, that just in itself created like a whole genre. Of, Absolutely. Let's take this fantasy stuff seriously because it is serious. Oh, it's yeah. almost more serious than like a realistic drama. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I um, I totally agree. I mean, uh, of course I agree. I'm a huge fiction reader, but um, or a fantasy reader. You know, now that we exist in a world where this genre is like extremely well developed and commercialized, it's refreshing to read the work of basically just a guy who was absolutely obsessed with the world he was creating, the language he was creating. Um, I think that's pretty unusual during this day and age. Um, and like, not so much in books as it is just in like fantasy media in general. I mean, a big reason we started this whole podcast was to kind of brush up on, I mean, for me to like actually read these books before the Amazon show comes out. And a big fear I have with this Amazon show is the changing of what this media started out as, you know, and I've just seen it happen to too many great fiction and fantasy stories and movie series and show series that I I like a lot where it just becomes this big money maker and yeah there's definitely reasons to be pretty cautious I'd say and it's not so much that I'm suspicious of this production in and of itself it's just that like I've watched what's happened to to Star Wars (laughs) just yeah and like uh, and any real adaptation oh yeah a lot of times it's more rare that it succeeds than it's actually good i mean even harry potter i would say the original run of those those movies were great but like i don't understand what is happening now in that world you know it's just weird yeah it's just weird to watch something kind of grow hydra heads and just become this like undefeatable force of capitalism rather than the original interesting piece of work yeah, just kind of growing beyond any real worth. Like, the, the story's <laughs> been told, it's wrapped up, but why are you still doing this? Yeah. Not that Plus I don't love content, but, like, you know, well, we can, that's a bigger discussion. Yeah. But I don't just want content, I want stories. I want quality. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, that concludes our entire adventure into The Lord of the Rings, uh, which is very, <sighs> I can't believe we've made it, way more emotionally gut-wrenching by the end of it than i thought it was going to be especially this last section holy shit like that's a tough one i'm pretty fucked up right now (laughs) um but you can join us on our travel from the shire to valinor we are going to take a week to review the lord of the rings and the hobbit that kind of section of tolkien's work and prime ourselves on the silmarillion before we really get into it the week after next if you haven't already please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts you can also follow us on twitter at half as well pod or you can check out our website at half as well and that's where you can find our reading schedule i'm sage And I'm William. And this is Half Half as as Well. Well.